I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles now and turn over to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at a few verses in 1 John chapter 4 this morning for the next little bit together. These are verses that talk about spirituality. And spirituality is something that a lot of people have a lot of interest in in American culture right now. Spiritual reality is something I hope you crave. I hope you're not satisfied with what can be coded into an app or streamed into your living room or into the palm of your hand for that matter. I hope you're craving something more than what you can see and touch, something more than what you can control. The craving for something deeper, something more is ancient. It's only in the fairly recent past that anybody would, would deny that craving or try to suppress it. But in America, at least in recent years, at least in the last few decades, this craving for some sort of spiritual experience, something deeper, something truer than what I can see around me, it's taken on some really interesting forms. I mean, in America, spirituality has, has been something that we like to try on, much the same way we try on clothes or cars or types of food and we try them on for much the same reason that we try on clothes or cars that spirituality come has come to 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 make a statement about me as an individual spirituality is a way for expressing my uniqueness or my own personal worth and dignity that's a common theme in spirituality that we in spirituality books and talks that you might hear in american culture these days i remember in graduate school one of the main texts that we would read to try to understand what religion is like now in contemporary America was a book by a, a team of sociologists led by a guy named Robert Bella. The book was called Habits of the Heart, written in the mid-80s, mid-1980s. There's this one iconic section. Now, some of you guys ought to forgive me for you probably heard me talk about this section before. Um, there's this one iconic section in this book that describes something they call Sheilaism. Named for a woman that they interviewed about her own religious practices back in the 1980s. A woman who's really representative of a lot of other people that they talked to about their religious practices. This was a woman who'd named her religion after herself. So what, what, here's a quote from Sheila's own mouth. I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism just my own little voice so what does this voice tell her they asked it's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself Sheila answered you know I guess take care of each other I think he would want us to take care of each other that's Sheilaism and what the authors talk about is that you've got as many different versions of that sort of spirituality as you have people who are practicing it Sheila is not a representative that people are rallying to. Sheila is a religion of one. And, and, and maybe, maybe your own practice of spirituality so far has, has looked something like Sheila's. And, and if it does, I, it may seem ridiculous to you to speak of true and false spirituality. The idea that, that some spirituality could be true and that some spirituality could be false might just seem as ridiculous as saying... Some clothes are true and some clothes are false. If that's your instinct this morning, I want you to listen to what John says in the first verse of chapter 4. Listen to what he says. 
John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, he says, to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Don't believe every spirit, he says. Spirituality is a real thing. But not every expression of spirituality, not every spirit is from God. I want to invite you to consider another way to view spirituality, this hunger for something more that I hope every one of you is experiencing this morning. I want you to think about John's claim that there is a spirituality from God and then there are a seemingly infinite number of spiritualities that come from somewhere else. If if that idea sounds off-putting to you so far, the idea that that some spirituality is true, some spirituality is false, if that's off-putting to you this morning, then, then what I want you to know, first of all, is that you are welcome here. We are so glad that you're in this room with us right now. So thankful that you're gonna get to hear what we're all gonna try to seek to hear, which is what the Bible has to say about spirituality. What I wanna invite you to do, if it's off-putting so far, is to just bear with us for a few minutes, to to consider where the Bible's coming from, to at least try to hear it on its terms, to take it for what it is, and then evaluate that. This This is a letter, this letter that John wrote, soon after Jesus had left the earth, a letter that he wrote in order to help his friends in a church he probably founded tell the difference between true and false versions of Christianity. There had been teaching that had cropped up after John had left this community that had probably been telling them things about Jesus that were deadly, things that sounded good, maybe were even more pleasant to listen to than what John himself had told them, and that they had been tempted to accept but that John believed was a path to not, to, not to life, not to a higher consciousness or a deeper connection to spiritual reality, but to death. So he's written to help them tell the difference between what's true and what's false. And last week, the passage we looked at ended with John referring to the spirit, the spirit that God has given to us as Christians, a spirit that tells our spirit that we're with him. It's by his spirit we know that we abide in him, John says. And that mention of the spirit leads him into these six verses we're going to look at this morning to tell us what it looks like to listen to, to recognize the spirit of God. How do you tell what spirituality comes from God and what doesn't? This morning, I want you to see from these these six verses in chapter four, two marks of the kind of spirituality that comes from God, true spirituality. I want to begin by reading the first six verses of John, 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word, please, while I read. This is the word of the Lord to us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. 
Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first mark of a spirituality that comes from God or what I'm just going to call true spirituality. That first mark of true spirituality is that it focuses on Jesus. I think that's the point that John makes in the first three verses of our passage this morning. The first couple of verses have clarified what I've already mentioned. That that not everybody who claims to be spiritual or to speak from the Spirit speaks truth from God. That false prophets are a huge problem. That people testifying to something their spirit told them may be testifying to something they heard from someone other than God. A spirit that John calls the Antichrist, a spirit that's against Jesus. That having spiritual experience, that claiming to have experienced something that you want to pass on to somebody else isn't enough to know if that's something you should listen to. You need to test the spirits, John says. See whether they're from God. We think that his friends would have really needed this encouragement, partly because there was a faction among them that had been telling them things about Jesus that was different from what John had told them about Jesus, and that this faction seems to have left their church. And these people who stayed behind in the church were surely wondering what to make of that. They were wondering whether or not they should go too, perhaps. Perhaps they loved the people who left Maybe they trusted them. Maybe some of those people were their teachers who, when they gathered each week like we're doing right now, would have talked to them about Jesus and they'd come to, to defer to what they had to say. And so now these people are leaving. It's this, this, this crisis, this existential crisis. How, how do I know what's true? Who should I believe? They're confused. And John's writing to show them how to tell. His first point comes out in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. How do you know what true spirituality is? Well, here's how you know. Verse 2 says that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's how you know it's from God. And then he makes the same point in a negative way after this. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So true spirituality focuses on Jesus. That's the the point we want to unpack here for a minute. I want to make sure this is clear. I want to make sure that you can see at least two things from this test John is laying out. This test of whether or not the Spirit speaks of Jesus. Two things that are important for us to, to notice in this test. One, that Jesus is the key. And two, what about Jesus is the key. The first thing you've got to notice is that, is that Jesus is the key to whether or not a spirit is from God or not. John's saying here something that Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John about the work of the Spirit. Jesus had predicted during his teaching while he was still on earth, he had predicted, I'm going to go back to the Father, and when I do, that's good for you. That's a good thing for you because I'm going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit will actually be in you, and he will guide you into the things that I've taught. He will help you understand what I taught, help you remember what I taught. He will guide you into what is true. And here's what Jesus said in John 15 about the Spirit and what his job would be. The job of the Spirit who Jesus would send to his people when the Helper, the Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. When he comes, Jesus said, he will bear witness about me. It's that simple. The Spirit who is from God, his job description in the world is to help people see and understand and love Jesus. 
The focus of his work is Christ in you. Spirits that don't come from God, they undermine Jesus. Even if, Jesus may not even be something that those spirits mention to you. Even if their work is mainly to just keep you from thinking about Jesus. Even if their work is just to pump up Jesus' competition in your heart. Even if their work is just to make you look somewhere else for meaning or peace for wisdom or security. They don't have to tear Jesus down explicitly to be a spirit that's not from God or to be the spirit of the Antichrist that John is talking about. They just have to be focused on something besides Jesus, trying to fill your mind and your heart with some other option for peace. I love the way that one, uh, an old British pastor named Charles Spurgeon pastored in London for many years, about 150 years ago. This is the way he captures this same idea about the Spirit and his work. Spurgeon wrote, I love the way he writes, he's so vivid. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, our feelings, It is what Jesus is, Spurgeon wrote, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. And it's the Spirit's job to teach us that, to help us see him. So what does that mean for you? That Jesus is the content of true spirituality. True spirituality focuses on him. Remember, friends, that this is is a passage about discernment. It's about how important it is to be careful what you're listening to, who is guiding you as you look for what's more than what you can see around you, as you crave some sort of spiritual experience, some connection to something bigger, to something more lasting, something that transcends the material things that are all around you. As you're looking for that, it matters what you're hearing and who it's from. How can you tell the difference between something worth your trust and something that isn't? So what does it mean for you that Jesus is the content of true spirituality? I'm not an expert in, in, in much contemporary spirituality. I'll be honest about that. I mean, I, I'm paying attention to things that are on bestseller lists and every now and then read an article here or there. I've read stuff about religion in America that talks about contemporary spirituality. I don't have a lot of experience with it, but to take this with a grain of salt. But my sense is, my, my sense is that much of contemporary spirituality focuses on you. The, the, the content of it is, is you as an individual. It's on the individual's journey to self-discovery that, that much contemporary spirituality focuses. On, on removing layers of scar tissue or protective armor that may have suppressed or covered up your truest self in response to things you've experienced that have hurt you. And, and I want to be clear that the Bible celebrates self-awareness one of its main themes is trying to help humans understand who they are. So, so you understanding you is not a wrong thing to be interested in. The Bible will help you with that. But the focus of God's Spirit is not first and foremost on you, but on Jesus. True spirituality looks to Him. So where is your focus as you look for something more? Where's the focus of the voices you're listening to, that you're reading or watching? Is Jesus even necessary to the vision of life they present to you? That's something you should think about.
want you to notice from these verses that Jesus is the key. There's something else, though, about the Jesus as the focus of true spirituality that we, that we need to know. We need to know not just that he's the key, that, that it ought to be focused on Jesus, that the Spirit always focuses people on Jesus. We need to know why Jesus is the key. What about Jesus is the key to true spirituality? The, the, what John says here about Jesus is very specific. What he said, where he says the Spirit of God shows up in people is, is very specific. He says the Spirit of God shows up when believers confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. There's the phrase. It's a loaded phrase. How do you know the Spirit of God? He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Verse 2. I want to make sure you know what he means by that phrase because everything rests in its meaning. Everything. About you connecting with something more than what you can see around you. I think here's what it means. It's a loaded phrase. I just want to pick it apart little by little. It's a spirit that confesses that Jesus is Christ, for one thing. It's a word for Messiah, the anointed one, the one that, that Israel had looked to as the rescuer from sin and sorrow. To say that he's the Messiah or the Christ goes to what Jesus came for. You have to get that. The Spirit will help you get that if, if it's a true spirit from God. That Jesus is the one who's come to rescue God's people just as was promised. That Jesus has come, to take the next little bit, Jesus Christ has come implies he was once not here. He was somewhere else. Implies what John says at the beginning of his gospel. That, that Jesus is the word who was with God and was God from all of eternity. We have something here that's more than just simply a human being born of someone in Bethlehem at a specific time and place. We have something more here. This Christ had to come from somewhere else. And then finally in, in this phrase, we have this claim that he's come not just as Christ, but that he's come in the flesh. Jesus had to have a body. This true spirit, the spirit that is from God is going to convince you of the beauty of a body in, in which the Christ dwells. That a body is essential to everything he came to do. Seems like probably that piece is the one John's friends were struggling with. We don't know for sure what, they were, what, the, what this other group of teachers was teaching. We just kind of have to cobble it together best we can from what we do see in what John has written and who he's kind of arguing against. But at such a specific reference, that he's come in the flesh, that, that many of the people I read to try to get some background on this passage suggest probably the false teachers were saying he didn't come in the flesh. That, that maybe he just looked like he was human. Or maybe there was a spirit that sort of came onto a human person for a time and then left him. But, but that... that, that that, that God, the, the word from all eternity past, could not come and, and be a human. Why would he? See, back in this time, especially in this world influenced so much by Greek thinking, the elite people, the insiders, the enlightened, they knew better than to celebrate a body. A body's not what you wanted. Who wants a Messiah that comes in the flesh? What you want is to be freed from a body. Bodies trap you. The real you is what's inside the body just decays. It just slows you down. It just wears out. What you, the, the you that's you is not your body, but what's inside you. That's what they believe. So, so why would a Messiah take on a body, what we're all trying to get free from? It was offensive to them, embarrassing. But for John, Jesus had to have a body. He couldn't come as the Christ. He couldn't be the Messiah. He couldn't rescue people if he didn't have a body. John's already said back in chapter 2 of this letter, he said that, that, that when we sin, 
we have an advocate. That Jesus came as one who, who stands for sinners, who fights for them, who delivers them. And that the way he advocates for sinners is very specific. John said he is an advocate for sinners because he's a propitiation with the Father. That just is an old term from old sacrificial worship, ancient religion, that, that he, he takes away wrath. He's an advocate for sinners because he bears a punishment they deserve to bear. Sinners who have neglected the God who made them and lived as if he had no claim on their life, lived as if, they, as if, as if he doesn't exist at all, Sinners like me, we deserve to die. By denying the source of our life, we deserve to lose the source of our life, to lose life altogether. That's what the Bible says. But Jesus came to rescue sinners. To do that, he had to take that wrath on his own self. And to take the wrath that sinners deserve, he had to have a body. Jesus had to become killable to be Christ. That's what John has taught us already. That's what he's referring back to here. If he didn't come in the flesh, he couldn't be killable. So that means you deny his physical body. You deny that he's both eternal God and fully human at the same time. And you deny what's central to my only hope for forgiveness. My only hope for peace or for joy. You deny that this physical body was raised again from the grave. And you're denying my only hope for a new body of my own. Can you see why this matters, friends? Why, 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 why the, you must confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Because what we confess as Christians is that Jesus came for me. And to come for me, he had to take the whip for me. He had to carry a cross on his own shoulders for me. He got mocked and spit on for me. He had his beard pulled out for me. Thorns were driven into his physical scalp for me. He had nails driven through his hands and through his feet for me. He hung naked, shamed before laughing crowds who could see his body exposed. He did that for me. He had a spear thrust into his side, a side just as real as mine. That was for me. And because I'm a sinner who deserves to die for my sin. Only his death can free me from mine. What Christians believe, friends, is that we need Jesus to be far more than just a model for us who shows us some sort of higher level of being. We need more than just a teacher who teaches us things we didn't understand before. We need a sacrifice to make us holy before the God whom we have sinned against. And for that... Our Christ has to have a body. Everything depends on it. So here's my question to you. Is this enfleshed, bleeding, crucified, and risen Jesus necessary to the spirituality that you're pursuing or consuming? Or could it be that, that the blood of Jesus that the violence involved in his death is just as embarrassing to you as him having a physical body was to the elite philosophers of John's day. Maybe a rough edge that you feel tempted to, to knock off or smooth out when you talk to friends about Christianity. 
If it wasn't necessary for your Jesus to have a body to do what he did, you need to be careful. If it wasn't necessary for Jesus to have a bleeding body for your spirituality advice, your counselors that you're looking to, to give the advice that they're giving, then friends, it doesn't matter how likable they are, how relatable, how open they seem to be about their own sins or flaws, how authentic they seem on the surface, it doesn't matter. Because it's not coming from the Spirit of God, whatever they're offering you. Not even if it's loving. Last week we talked about how love for others is one of the primary marks of true Christianity. And, and a lot of people will talk to you about the importance of love. I mean, Sheilaism, one of its key tenets was we should care for each other. I think he would want me to care for each other. John is balancing out what he said in the passage we looked at last week through what he says this week. That there's a very specific kind of love for each other that where true Christianity shows up. It isn't just enough to have warm feelings for each other or even to do sacrificial things for one another if you're not, if Jesus is not necessary. Then even when we love, we're offering something other than true Christian love. And what we may be relying on is the spirit of Antichrist. A spirit that would convince us we don't need this Jesus. Ask it of what you're reading. Ask it of who you're listening to. Ask it of what you are thinking about yourself and about where true meaning lies. Is Jesus necessary? I want to spend the next few minutes pointing to one other test much more quickly. The first mark of true spirituality, according to John, is that true spirituality focuses on Jesus. Does yours? The second mark of true spirituality is that it listens to God's word. Does yours? In verse 4 of the passage that we were considering this morning, John makes this statement of confidence about his friends. He says, you are from God. He believes that. You have God's spirit in you, in other words, drawing your attention to Jesus, rooting your faith in Jesus. That's why he can say in verse 4 that even though there's all these spirits out there doing battle against Jesus, trying to undermine faith in Jesus, attacking those who side with Jesus, even though that's true, he's not worried. He says, you've overcome already. It's as good as one. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He's confident that the Spirit lives in them and that the Spirit knows how to bring them home. But how can he be so confident, especially after so many good people, that people they probably knew and loved and maybe trusted, didn't overcome? People who were part of their church that, that went out from their church. How do you explain that? And why can you be so confident that, that, that we'll stay true, that we'll overcome? You can almost imagine that question behind uh, the, the thinking of John's friends. And it's what he's writing to in this, these next few verses. Verse 6 includes the same phrase as verse 2. Verse 2 said, by this you can know the spirit of God. Verse 6 says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By what? Here's another test. Here the test is not what somebody confesses about who Jesus is. It's a different test here. Here the test is whether or not a person listens to John. You know who's from God and you know who's from the world. You know what spirit is God's spirit and you know what spirit is Antichrist based on a response to John's teaching. Did you see that in verse 6? We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. 
Whoever's not from God doesn't listen to us. If that sounds to you like a power play on John's part, that's because it is a sort of power play on John's part. It is an appeal to authority. But it's a very specific sort of power play that he's making. It's a benevolent, loving, even life-saving sort of power play. What he's doing here is the same thing I would do if, if a kid in my son's class tells him it's fun to try to run across a busy street to see if you can avoid getting hit, you know, like some sort of video game, then I'm going to tell my son, I know you heard that. I know there was a spirit out there that testified to the truthfulness of that claim, uh, but it's not true. I'm going to say that's not fun, that's dangerous. I'm going to say that's deadly. And I'm going to say you should listen to me because I'm your father, I love you, and I know what's best for you. That's the kind of power play that John's making here. He's reminding them, basically, he has done this already in the letter, of who he is to them. He has that kind of relationship with his community. So it's an appeal to authority doesn't have to be a power trip. It isn't self-serving on John's part. He believes he's been entrusted by God with a message that they've been told from the beginning, a message that Jesus himself taught to John when John was friends with Jesus and that now he's handing on to other people who can hand it on to other people. He, it's bigger than him. He's not just making a, a narrow power play trying to get them to want to, to, to worship him. He believes he's been given a charter, a special responsibility that not everybody has that's unique because of his relationship with Jesus. He's making a claim to what, what we have come to call an apostolic authority that was given to people who were with Jesus to pass on truth about Jesus. He's a custodian of God's voice, in other words. And God's children know God's voice. They know that, God, that John speaks for God about Jesus and they listen. That's what he's claiming. It reminds me of the passage Jennifer read earlier. Uh, Jesus himself talked to John 10 about being this shepherd and his sheep always hear his voice. There are people who reject his voice, Jesus said, but they aren't my sheep. They're not of my fold. Those who are my sheep, they listen to my voice. They follow me. They come. And John's saying the same thing here. The same thing that the Bible says all through its pages about how God's people relate to God's word, whether it's coming through Moses or through the prophets, or through the apostles, or through Jesus himself, there is a dividing line between those who hear and respond to God's word and those who reject it. That recognizing those words and embracing those words that come from God is the difference between life and death. And what John is saying is those who have God's spirit, the way you know they have God's spirit is they listen to his voice through me. They're drawn to it. They can tell that I'm giving them God's word like Jesus did, like the prophets did, like Moses did. And they want to hear from it. So what he's doing here is, is pretty straightforward, I think. He's writing to people who maybe were worried about why their friends had left or they were feeling like outsiders to a circle they'd rather be inside of. And what John is telling them is, what he's reminding them is the consistent message of the Bible. The dividing line that really matters is not the line between those who are wise and those who are foolish, not between those who are rooted in some sort of barbaric past and those who belong to some bright and hopeful future. The line, belong, the line that matters is the line between those who listen to God's word and those who don't. 
We need to hear that too, friends. If you're not a Christian yet, and you're here this morning trying to learn more about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, then I just want to acknowledge what could be an elephant in the room for you. I want to acknowledge that maybe you're distracted a bit by the, by the convenience of this claim that John has just made. <laughs> he would say that, wouldn't he? Like, those who are really from God, listen to me. Those who are not from God, they don't listen to me. Of course he would say that, right? Isn't that convenient and self-serving? Maybe even sounds like the kind of claim that a cult leader would make. And actually, you're right. That's exactly the kind of claim a cult leader would make. So how do we get from this man's words to the Bible? To John saying, they listen to me, to what I've just said, which is the importance of listening to God's word on the whole. How do we get, make that leap? And how do we get from listening to the Bible to listening to God's word? As if, how do we know that the Bible itself represents God's word? How do we know it's trustworthy? How do we know it's the dividing line between those who know him and those who don't? If you're asking those questions, I think you're asking the right questions, the essential questions for someone considering faith in Jesus. And I hope it's clear there is way too much ground to cover than I can cover in this sermon. But I want you to know that, that I'm, I'm sensitive to those questions and eager to talk about them. And you'd be making our week if you'd give us a chance to hash that out with you. Uh, there, are, there are good things, good talking points, good answers for the questions that you have. There are good resources I can put in your hand if you'd rather just read and think about it on your own and follow up later. There's even a book uh, that'd be a good starting place out on our resource table in the hallway, a book called Why Trust the Bible by a pastor named Greg Gilbert. It's very helpful on these questions. We'd love for you to just take one of those books if you're interested and then follow up with us. I want to tr- speak now to Christians in the room. I want, to, I want to conclude with some questions for you. And what we've said here is that what John is saying here is, is just a reminder of what you've hopefully known before. Our whole faith, everything we're, we're looking to as Christians is founded on God's word. Anything you know about Jesus, you learned in this word. And any promise that you're trusting comes from this word. So the question for you, friends... Does your spirituality reflect that dependence on God's word? Is the Bible central to the sources you're looking to for encouragement and for wisdom and for self-knowledge? Do the voices that resonate with you speak from this word or not? Because it's not how many TED Talk views they, they've, they've mounted up so far. It isn't how many times their books have been reviewed on Amazon or with what star rating. It isn't how authentic they seem to you or how you feel when you hear them speak that matter. Those things don't matter. John has said here that the world is always going to have an adoring audience. When spirits speak from the world, those who are in the world are going to listen to them. That's no newsflash. When you're selling what the world loves, its own are going to hear it and love it. How do you know the true spirit of God? Friends, you can see it in a humility and submissiveness to God's word. The spirit's work in us is to make us eager to hear what the Bible says. And not just to hear it, but to want to embrace it even if it comes at cost to ourselves, even if it means redirecting what seems natural and inevitable in ourselves, even when it means a kind of death to self, we want to hear what he says and to obey it. 
Are you eager to listen to his word? Father, I pray that you would deepen our eagerness to hear from you. Deepen our confidence that you speak in your, in your word. And deepen our affection for the Jesus who is the content of your word and of your spirit's work in us. We pray for a true spirituality in ourselves. For a deep connection to what is more than what we can just see. This world that is passing away. But we pray that you would protect us from believing things that aren't going to connect us to anything lasting. We pray that you would, uh, you would fasten our hearts on Jesus who took on a flesh for us so that he could die for us and be raised for us. And we pray that you would help us as a community to help each other keep looking through this spirit to this word with confidence and hope and joy. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.